Thank you so much for everybody that's uh, wished me well. Um, it was a bit of a rough time, but uh, I'm getting over it and a um, bit of a chest infection. Uh, but um, um, do you know what is the one of the most favorite things I do? Not just preaching, but preaching to you. Okay, there is no better place in the world than preaching to your home church. And uh, I love it. <laughs> and I love you. And if we can just get some of God's truth more and more into our lives, then, you know, my job is done and I'll be going to glory. So if it's a really exceptional sermon this morning and I'm not here tomorrow, uh, you understand why I have my work is done and God's called me home. That's cheerful, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, I love to talk about eternity as if it's real. <laughs> because it is. And, uh, you know, this kind of division between, uh, you know, we are in eternal life. Say, I am in eternal life. I really am. Oh, thank you, Karen. I really am in eternal life. It started already. The day you were born again, you came into eternal life. And... Uh, Actually, what, what I wanted to say about uh, this week is that how many people have been at the Chris Valentin conference? That was just a feast, wasn't it? Um, now, here's, here's the thought I had in the worship. If you receive a prophet, what do you receive? Prophet's reward. So as we receive Chris Valentin over these last few days, we are going to receive a prophet's reward. Now, I don't know what that looks like. You know, we probably got not time to, to describe it. But just, just put your hand on your heart and say, I've received his reward. I've received the prophet, so I've received the prophet's reward. It's amazing, isn't it? So you, although, you know, Chris did some wonderful things over those two days, the outworking of that is going to, you know, will just keep multiplying and keep growing as, as we've received him. Just want to share too some, some amazing news about the Sanctuary uh, Homeless Project. Since September, they have successfully, if you're not sure, if you're, not, uh, uh, if you're new to the church, then the night shelter operates three nights a week uh, with meals and overnight stay at the local Methodist church. It's a, um, a, an initiative of churches together in the locality. But since September, they have successfully rehoused a dozen people. That's amazing, isn't it? That's 12 people who otherwise would be on the streets. And, you know, once you get into, you know, accommodation, then so many of your other problems begin to, or, you know, potentially can be sorted out. Not only that, but the local council, who we continue to have great favor with, you know, we've been able to bless the council in all sorts of ways and built good relationships, you know, with them. They have given, now listen to this, they have given us a community room uh, that's literally round the corner from the, uh, the Methodist church in the middle of Gravesend for permanent use for a night shelter. <laughs> Part of you wonder, you know, none of us have ever heard of it, but it was there. <laughs> it's a little lesson here, isn't it? It was there all the time. Right? And God provided and God, you know, I don't know who God spoke to, but he spoke to somebody in the council and that building is being released. That gives the potential for running a night shelter for, uh, if we can get volunteers for it, 
you know, every night of the week. And as you know, it runs through from kind of beginning of December to the end of March. Uh, but that's just amazing, isn't it? And it's amazing. And some of those people not only are being rehoused through various agencies, but, you know, are getting into church, some of them are getting saved. And now for some time, many of the people who have been impacted by the, you know, the night shelter are actually volunteering, you know, on the shifts. So it's kind of, you know, it's generating its own kind of work, to some extent, some of its own kind of workforce, although they always need more people to get, get involved with it. So I thought I'd just share with that, that, that sort of good news. So, um, last week we were uh, going to start a series on the first epistle to John. Um, I have preached on this twice in the evening, so if you want the longer version, well, you might be thankful for the shorter version, but if you want the longer version, then go on our website and you'll get two talks, one on chapter one and one on chapter two. Uh, I would have done chapter one last week, but I wasn't well. So this week you're going to get two for one, and uh, you know I'm going to put two two talks really into one so that we can kind of catch up um, and it will have a slightly different flavor to it as well for that reason but John is writing uh, to uh, well, let me let me start let me start with the title actually the title for the for the talk is live in the father's love can you say that with me live in the father's love there are many ways of describing your walk with God aren't they and that's one of the key ones So if you have been called as a born-again Christian to simply live in the Father's love. Just close your eyes for a moment. However you picture the Father, just picture him. It's almost like the Father's beckoning you into his presence, maybe even sitting you down, sitting on, you know, I know for many of you, that picture of sitting on his lap is a, is a powerful one. And the Father just wants to draw alongside you this morning and kind of whisper great truths into your heart. Some of them you'll be familiar with. Some of them will come with a fresh power, poignancy. It's almost like he wants to come and seal again his, his fatherhood. His daddyhood, if you will. Abba, Father, just, just let the Holy Spirit speak Abba, Father, into your heart again. Just as he did when he poured out his spirit in your life. And your spirit cries back, Abba, 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 Father. <laughs> You've probably heard it before, one of the greatest needs of the world, isn't it, is the lack of fathers. Both in a kind of physical sense, but also much deeper and much broader in a spiritual sense. There's a sense in which until everybody is met with a father, they are an orphan. And it's been our amazing discovery, not just through the Toronto blessing, but, you know, in in latter days as well. To actually rediscover the, uh, the joy and the force of that idea that, you know, we are loved by the Father. I remember where Pete and I sat in a meeting that Bill Johnson was uh, speaking at some years ago. And he threw out a question. He said, why did Jesus come? You know, what was, what was his purpose? And we compared notes afterwards and had all sorts of, you know, good uh, 
explanations for that, and many of them were true. But kind of Bill just floored us a bit when he said, Jesus came to reveal the Father. Surprisingly, and amazingly to, uh, and maybe slightly shockingly to us, it wasn't the first thing that had come into either of our minds. But Jesus came to reveal the Father. That was at the heart of his mission. And what you get in John's gospel actually is a group of maybe churches, because he's writing as a general epistle, who actually have been kind of shaken in that assurance, shaken in their belief. They have been affected by false prophets. In fact, John even calls them false prophets in chapter 4. Mark Henley will be dealing that chapter uh, later on. Uh, He also calls them very strong language. He calls them antichrists. Now, if you know anything about the Antichrist, you know that there there is a sense in which Scripture looks forward ultimately at the end of the last days, if you like, to a figure, an individual who is an Antichrist. But actually, in every generation, ever since the first century, there have been Antichrists. You can talk about the spirit of Antichrist. And uh, what does it mean? It just means somebody who's Antichrist. Right? Simple as that. We try and sort of demythologize it a little bit. Um, so if anything is anti-Christ, it is anti-Christ. Complicated stuff this morning, isn't it? Um, but, but John uses very strong language like that. And so you get some sort of measure. Remember, John is writing probably towards the end of the first century, maybe 1890 AD, when the churches have been very well established. And yet, you know, despite that, there's great uncertainty. And so actually John is writing to them to make sure that they know, you know, how to be certain about their faith. Does anybody want to be certain about their faith? Are you sure? <laughs> okay. Um, in fact, he, John says that explicitly. Uh, I think chapter 5 will be the one I pick up on later on. But in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There's the certainty. Eternal life isn't a theory, isn't just a kind of, well, you know, we need to explain what happens to you when you, when you die. No, eternal life, by definition, is something that you should be certain of. So you can walk into the office, you can walk into the workplace, you can walk into your family and say, I am going to heaven. Say that with me. I am going to heaven. You arrogant bunch. <laughs> it's not arrogance, is it? A free gift from God is not arrogance. That's what takes the arrogance out of it. The world may perceive that you're being arrogant. How could you make a statement like that? How can you be so sure that the life you've started now will actually continue for eternity? Well, there are six good reasons why you can be sure, and we're going to look at them. They're all in these first two chapters. And here's John. John, uh, you see, John is writing in the light of these false prophets and false teachers. So the first thing he does is to establish his own authority. If we take the first few verses in chapter 1, he says, That which from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it. Say with me, seen it. We testify to it. Say with me, testify to it. And we proclaim to you, we don't need to say that one, (laughs) 
we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So John's writing to these churches who've been infected by the teaching of false prophets, who have been infected by teaching that is anti-Christ. And the first thing he says is, look, we have the authority to speak about this. Why? Because we saw him. We ate with him. We walked with him. We talked with him. We learned from him. We saw him do miracles. We saw him raise people from the dead. We saw troubled people, you know, with demons cast out of them. We were there. Nobody, nobody apart from us has the authority, the apostolic authority to say the things that John is about to say. And this isn't one of the six, by the way, but you know, we'll throw this in. For, for, you know. One of the certainties that you have is that you have an apostolic witness to Jesus. These people saw it. They were there. They felt it. They touched it. They walked with Jesus. They saw him calm the storm, feed the 5,000. They were there, although they doubted all the time he spoke about his being handed over to the authorities, being crucified, and on the third day rose again from the dead. They were there, and they saw him risen from the dead. There is no real you know, explanation about the Christian faith other than that Jesus rose from the dead. 500 people saw him in one place. Two other people walking along a road. These are not hallucinations. This is not, the body wasn't, you know, taken and by somebody else because it could have been produced later on to disprove the resurrection. You may know the evidence for the resurrection. Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And that invests on God's word with great apostolic authority. What is the one thing, not just the only thing, but probably one of the major things that has been attacked in our day? Well, the resurrection, but, but, but I'm thinking particularly the authority of God's word. What does the Bible mean to most people? Not very much. Oh, well, it must have been passed down from one person to another, to another, to another. And it was all kind of Chinese whispers. And who can believe that stuff anyway? I watched one of these uh, chat programs. I think it was uh, the one, uh, actually, it's probably one who wasn't here last week. <laughs> and uh, trying, struggling to do something. I actually heard, you know, some, somebody, there was a Christian in the audience who was defending, you know, the moral truths enshrined in, in God's word. And some guy on the other side, bless his cotton socks, you know, sort of compared the Bible with a comic. You know, as if to say, like, you know, you believe that stuff over there. Well, that's just because it's written down. You know, I could, a comic's written down, I can believe that. That's crazy, isn't it? You know, it's probably a very common idea. The one thing that should bring us certainty, or one of, one of the big things that bring us certainty, you know, is our total belief in the authority of Scripture. And here's John laying down right at the beginning his apostolic authority. See, those false prophets and antichrists came later. Whether they saw Jesus or not, is, uh, we, we don't know. We don't know very much about them. They're kind of just in the background. But here's John establishing the fact that he was there, we saw it, we saw him, we loved him, we were loved by him. You know, he, he appeared to us, we could touch him, we, 
Even at the resurrection, we sat down and, and ate with him. This is the Jesus. And actually, one of the, one of the heresies that the false teachers were proclaiming was that somehow Jesus hadn't really come as a human being. This was an early form of what they called Gnosticism. And the idea, one of the ideas behind Gnosticism is that anything physical is evil. So how can God, who is perfect, inhabit an evil body? And so they got into a heresy that somehow Jesus, by his spirit, came and inhabited this evil body, but he really wasn't part, it wasn't part of him. And that was the early form of, of this particular heresy. And John later in the epistle has to address that and says, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, to have certainty in your Christian faith, you need to believe the right things. You need to believe that Jesus came as a human being. He is the Christ, not some sort of, you know, um, apparition or something that, that really wasn't actually fully human as well as fully divine. But let's look at the, the things that make it, make it certain then. And they, um, I quite like the idea that certainty is C, very good in the alphabet. Um, and I've got six D's. So if you want to be certain, here are your six D's, okay? First one, death of Christ. Very obvious one, isn't it? How can you be certain about your faith? What does John say in verse 7? But if we walk in chapter 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Put very simply, how can you be certain about your faith? You can be certain because Jesus died for you. Turn to the person next to you and say, Jesus died for you. Why do we celebrate the bread and the wine? Why? Because Jesus wants us to be constantly reminded, not of our sin which is a kind of error that many of you fall into, but actually what Jesus did for us, that he's always available, that all our sin has been forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all our sin, past, present, and future. Isn't it good that God's got you covered for the future? Hopefully you're sitting here this morning, and if you don't know this forgiveness, then seek it and find it until you have it, until you know that you are perfectly cleansed by God. You are perfectly forgiven by God. You are totally accepted by God. You are embraced by the Father's love, because the Father sent the Son to die on the cross for you and for me. The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. And not only does, does, does that forgiveness forgive, uh, cover all our guilt for what we do, it also covers all the shame for who we are or what we have been. That's amazing, isn't it? Not only do you get your sins forgiven, you become a new person. Shameless. You shameless people. You are shameless. That's what made you so amazing. 
There's no shame in your life. Nothing can attach itself to you. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross to deliver you from all your guilt and all your shame. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just do this with me. I am in Christ Jesus. He is in me. Actually, it should work the other way around. You can practice at home. That's your absolute certainty, isn't it? And it's worth, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, why did Paul go to the Corinthians and say, I came and I preached amongst you and I, and I was determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now, we've probably preached this before where, you know, we don't believe that you literally have to sit at the cross mourning over your sin. Why would you do that? Because you're not sinners. Why would you mourn over something that's already been removed? However, it's important for us to know that Jesus has died for us. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If he has given us his son, surely he will give us all things. This is absolute certainty about it, isn't it? And so when your faith is rocked, when the circumstances around you seem to be like a storm, just remember that Jesus died for you. When you see, when you stand in the ultimate place, on the ultimate judgment day, when God appears in all his glory and all his majesty, and you stand unashamed, without any condemnation, fully forgiven, fully accepted by the Godhead, and you enter into your rest, Hallelujah. Amen. Come on. Let's get Pentecostal. Or just say amen anyway. Now here's the second. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the death of Christ. <laughs> we could spend more time on it. Intriguingly, one of the things that gives you certainty in your faith is actually the things that you do. Let me just read you a story. Two cars are waiting at a spotlight. The light turns green, but the man in the first car doesn't notice it. A woman in the car behind him watches the traffic pass around them. She begins pounding on her steering wheel and yelling at the man to move. He doesn't move. The woman is going ballistic inside her car, ranting and raving at the man, pounding on her steering wheel and dashboard, and then the light turns yellow. She begins to blow the car horn, flips him off, and screams at him. The man, hearing the commotion, looks up, sees the yellow light, and accelerates through the intersection as just as the light turns red the woman is beside herself screaming in frustration as she misses her chance to get through the intersection as she is still in mid-rant she hears a tap on her window and looks up into the barrel of a gun held by a very serious looking policeman policeman tells her to shut off the car while keeping both hands in sight she complies speechless of what is happening after she shuts off the engine the police officer orders her to exit her car with her hands up she gets out of the car and orders her to turn and place her hands on the car. She turns, places her hands on the car roof and is quickly cuffed and hustled into the patrol car. She's too bewildered by the chain of events to ask any questions and is driven to the police station where she is fingerprinted, photographed, searched, booked and placed in a cell. After a couple of hours, a police officer escorts, sorry, approaches the cell and opens the door for her. She's escorted back to the booking desk where the original officer is waiting with her personal effects. Her hands, uh, he hands her the bag containing her things and says, I'm really sorry for this mistake. But you see, 
I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping that guy off and shouting at the car in front of you. And then I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder and what would Jesus do and follow me to Sunday school bumper stickers and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. So I naturally assumed you had stolen the car. (laughs) Our Christianity should show up in what we do. And that obviously is a negative example. (laughs) Poor dear lady, probably very repentant. She needs to get the, take the first point and ask God to forgive her probably. But um, just look with me at uh, where it says, chapter 2, verse 4. The man who says, I know him, right, knowing him, being certain, does not do what, uh, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, if you're a negative frame of mind, you can tend to think, well, you know, I do lots of things for God, but I never do enough. Shame on you if you think like that. <laughs> Why? Because you are denying, you know, don't, 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 don't want to sound harsh about this, but you are denying the opportunity to be sure about your faith. And the opportunity to be sure about a faith is to actually look at the good things that you do. Now, as good Protestant Reformed believers, we have got so used to the truth that we are justified by faith and not by works. Amen? We'll believe that, don't we? Hopefully. That actually is made us overlook... Uh, the parallel truth that actually good works are not only there to be done flowing out of your faith, they don't justify you, they don't put you right with God, but actually they there are there there to assure you that something has changed. You have changed. And it's ever so English of us, isn't it, to you know be understated, not just English but probably Western, you know, understated about our good works. It's not like you have to go around parading them before other people. That would be a mistake. However, God is happy to put you on display with your good works. He is saying, yeah, if you don't do the good works, then in a sense you're lying about your faith. But if you do do the good works, then you can be, you know, that is something about that that makes his love complete in you. Doesn't love you any the less if you don't do them. But there's something of a completing of God's work in your life when you follow for him. So faith follow. you know, you're not saved by your works, but works follows from faith. I love the story of the Salvation Army maid who knew she had become a Christian. Why? Because she didn't sweep the dust under the carpet anymore. That's something she did every day. And she got away in a sense, she, you know, nobody noticed it. She noticed it and God noticed it. But she realized, I've changed. I don't do that anymore. And you could probably point at countless things in your life where you have changed. And they are there to assure you that God is at work in your life. That you have inherited, that you have changed. You are no longer a sinner, but a saint. 
You're a child of God, loved by the Father. Third, third D is to declare. You ever wondered, you ever read through John and got to the chapter 2, verse 12, which says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Delighted me to find this passage. Here's John declaring truths about people. You see, your assurance isn't just dependent on your belief in the death of Jesus or your good works. It's actually dependent on other people. That's why we make such a lot, really, of encouraging one another. And here's John with three different groups of people, although that's disputed. Maybe he's not just talking about you know, three separate, uh, separate uh, groups of people, but he's talking with two different groups of people and he's encouraging them. And he more or less says the same thing twice. Not, not exactly. And when scripture repeats itself, you ought to listen, didn't we? Here's John saying the way you can bring assurance <coughs> to the people around you is encouragement. So turn to the person next to you. I am going to encourage you. I'm going to be the most encouraging person you've ever met. <laughs> so the death of Jesus, the things we do, the things we declare. And then John in, in verse 15 says, says, Do not love the world or anything in the, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he does, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. We might have time just for this, but let me just read this to you. A boastful American, uh, two American stories, my apologies to uh, American brothers. A boastful American was showing this, being shown the sights of London by a taxi driver. What's that building there? asked the American. That's the Tower of London, sir, replied the taxi driver. Say, we can put up buildings like that in two weeks drawled the Texan. A little while later, he said, what's that building we're passing now? That's Buckingham Palace, sir, where the Queen lives. Is that so, said the Texan. Do you know, back in Texas, we put up a place like that in a week. A few minutes later, they were passing Westminster Abbey. The American asked again, hey, cabbie, what's that building over there? I'm afraid I don't know, sir, replied the cab, uh, taxi driver. It wasn't there this morning. Boasting, <laughs> that's the connection with the story. Look at this verse where it says, If anyone loves the world, is verse 15, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the crazing of sinful man, the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he does, has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. One of the ways to remain in the love of the Father is not to love the world. Now it's interesting here, isn't it, that the Christian world has had great fun and sometimes quite disastrously made lots of rules about you, what you can cannot do. You know, often those are around things like drinking and eating and, and other things. And it's interesting that John avoids that temptation. 
And so he kind of leaves you with the, with having to make up your own mind. Now, if you want a church that will give you detail around what you can, cannot do, you probably don't want to stay at Eastgate. Because we don't have a list. We abide by all the general guidelines of scripture. Obviously, you know, we're not into adultery and murder and stealing. Hopefully you've realized that. So there are those kind of, you know, clear uh, rules. But there are many things about our lives which are kind of options, aren't they? And here's, Paul, here's John giving you a very important principle. So the love of the Father is not in you. What, what, you know, if there's anything in your life that is competing with the love of the Father that somehow diminishes the love of the Father that takes you to a place that's uneasy or unpeaceful or, you know, disturbing in some way, then, you know, that can be something that you can avoid. It may not be something another Christian avoids necessarily or in the same way. You know, let's be frank, you know, there are different levels that people can drink alcohol to. It's perfectly okay not to drink alcohol. It's perfectly okay to drink it, just don't get drunk. But, you know, there are kind of all sorts of shades in between, aren't there? What, what is it that competes with the love of the Father? And it doesn't compete with the love of the Father. It's something you can embrace. Then this is that's the kind of, you know, John just doesn't give us a list. He just says, look out for the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. You know, how do you view your material possessions? What, do they have a hold on you? Or, you know, are you still free within that to, to love and to serve God and keep on experiencing the love of the Father? Fifth, uh, the 50 is simply doctrine, which I touched on earlier. In verse 22, it says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Later on in the epistle, Paul, uh, John will actually go on and talk about some of the beliefs of the Gnostics and how they got their doctrine of Christ wrong. And sometimes when we think of certainty, we tend to think of what's you know, a, a subjective feeling in our hearts. And it's ever so important that you have that. That you know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit cry, Abba, Father. We're going to return to this in a moment. But actually, folks, devotion goes alongside doctrine. They're not in opposition. Most, most heresies, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, Christadelphians would be another, many others in, in history have actually got their doctrine of Christ wrong. And is it important? Oh, yes, it is. It's important. Why? Because it's the truth, isn't it? The truth is Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And that's where the Gnostics had gone wrong. And because that was going wrong, they despised the human body. So that either left, left, you know, led them into license. Doesn't really matter what I do with my body. Sexual immorality as much as I like, blah, 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 blah. Or it led them into legalism. I beat my body up because it's evil. Martin Luther was like that, he, you know, before he got saved. Martin Luther would get up in the morning, wash his face, not dry his face, walk directly into the wind so that the wind chafed his face and he felt more holy. Sounds weird to us, doesn't it? Asceticism. You don't want license and you don't want legalism. You want what's in the middle, liberty, freedom. But freedom comes, what, what, you know, freedom and truth go hand in hand. 
So believing the right doctrine is very, very important. What will bring you certainty is knowing what you believe about Jesus. It's kind of as simple as that. Why? Because the truth is the truth. The truth will set you free. And equally, error will bring you into bondage. So make sure you believe the right things. That was the 50. The last one is this. The download. See what I did there? The download of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's some really radical verses just at the end of this chapter. Where, um, well, actually it's in verse 20 and then at the end. But, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, you, you, uh, because you do know it and because no one lies, no lie comes from the truth. Then in verse 26 it says, I'm writing these things to you because those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. How about that? You don't need teachers. What he seems to be saying, isn't it? The irony here is, of course, John is teaching. Um, But what he's saying is, the false teachers have led you astray. You have the greatest teacher inside you. You are open to constant downloads from the Holy Spirit. So, although we love teaching, and we love teaching aids, we love seminars, we love conferences... We love all the things that, you know, pour into our hearts. Actually, the greatest teacher that you have is within you. So in the context of John writing about the false prophets and the Antichrist who brought their false teaching, he's saying, you you don't, you know, he's exaggerating in a sense for effect, saying, you don't need teachers because actually you've got the teacher within you. Over the last half hour and during our worship, I expect the teacher has been at work, hasn't he? My prayer and aspiration is that as I teach, the teacher will teach through me. Otherwise, I might as well give up and go home. And you carry around the teacher. In one sense, I'm not going to dissuade you from coming to conferences or coming to seminars or do air connect groups or being here on a Sunday. But actually, whatever you hear is subject to the teacher within you. You have the anointing, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's even a play on words here. The anointing is the Greek word charisma, which is a reference both to the Christ the smeared one, the anointed one, and also a reference to the Holy Spirit. So John is doing kind of two things at the same time here, reminding them that they're, you know, they're, that Christ is both their teacher, but also the Holy Spirit is their teacher. They have, they are in Christ. They need to have the right view of Christ, but the, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the one who will teach them. So how can you be certain about your faith? Because Jesus died for you because of the things that you do. Things that you declare and encourage one another. Don't love the world. That was the other one. Having the right doctrine and making sure that you are constantly accessing, getting the Holy Spirit's input. I love the you know IT vocabulary. Kind of really fits with uh, just show how adaptable God's truth is, isn't it? Shall we stand? Just invite you to close your eyes for a moment.
We talk here at Eastgate about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And one of the signs of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you have this assurance that God is your Father and that He loves you. And yeah, sure, whatever you believe about truth and doctrine, and that's important, that doesn't count for a great deal unless it is impressed on your heart. That on a day-to-day level, you have a relationship with the Father where you know you're totally loved. I am David, loved by God. You are, whoever you are, loved by God. So if you've never asked the Holy Spirit to touch you like that, then just ask him now. Say with me, Holy Spirit, thank you that you reveal the Father to me. The Holy Spirit, come and flood my heart, flood my soul, and cry, Abba, Father, into the depths of my being. And if you just, if you know that in your heart already, but just want to be renewed in the Father's love, then just let him come now, just in this moment. (laughs) He loves, he loves to touch your heart. It's what he does. It's who he is. Thank you, Father.